Good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church on, as Ted mentioned, on a beautiful Sunday. And it, uh, it is true that the Lord knows exactly what we need. He knows when we need rain. And, and we do need rain. Now, my understanding is we're going to see some more of it tomorrow. But it is also nice to see the sunshine, too. It is nice to be able to experience that as well. So we're, we're excited to be here this morning on this beautiful Sunday morning. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We've been studying through this book now for well over a year. And if you've been with us on this journey, you'll know that Mark's narrative has slowed way down as we've gotten to chapter 11. In fact, I mentioned it just a few weeks ago that when we get to chapter 11, we come to the last third of Mark's gospel. But the last third of Mark's gospel really deals with the events that took place the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. So he slows the pace down and we are almost examining almost every move that Jesus makes in that last week before he goes to the cross. And, and what we pick up this morning in verse 27 is we pick up with the things that occurred on the Tuesday of that last week of Jesus' life. And, and what we learn is that this is the third straight day that he has traveled to the temple. If you'll recall, on Palm Sunday, uh, we looked at that a couple of weeks back. He, he came into the city riding a donkey and he was met by a host of people from Jerusalem. He was accompanied by a host going into Jerusalem. He went to the temple for the first time that evening, looked around, and then the Bible says that he went back to Bethany where he retired for the evening. And then it was on Monday that he got up Monday morning and then he went back to the, to the temple once again. And uh, there was, on that day was the day that he turned over all of the tables of the money changers and, and, and did all the things that he did there. That occurred on the Monday and he went back to Bethany that night. Well, Tuesday, uh, he gets up again and that's where we find ourselves this morning. And what we see is that one of Jesus' characteristics that left a tremendous impact and a lasting impression upon his followers was the same characteristic that also caused his opponents to become the greatest offended at him. And that is, as James Edwards has put it, Jesus displayed his sovereign freedom and his magisterial authority. His sovereign freedom and his magisterial authority. You know, and, and, and as I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking back about uh, when I went into boot camp uh, quite a few years ago now, about 30 I guess 31 years ago, that's, that's, that, that stuns me every time I think about that. But 31 years ago, as I found myself in boot camp, we were, we were taught something very early on, and that was how to recognize someone else's rank. So it was very important as a young sailor who had no rank and had no authority over anybody to figure out who all the other people were who were yelling at you and telling you to do stuff. So you needed to be able to figure out what the patches were on their shoulders so you could determine what rank they were and, and if they were officers or enlisted. And you had to learn all of these things. And it was very important. And what I, what I figured out after I got out of the Navy some four and a half years later is I realized how, how much better life would be sometimes if people still had to wear their patches on their shoulder. It would be really nice to know who actually is in charge sometimes. Because, you know, in a, in a lot of situations you find yourself, you, you, it doesn't, it's, it's not... It's not very visible who's the one who's actually calling the shots and who's in charge. But I want you to know the basis of, a of determining authority might be less obvious, but it's no less real. In some arenas, authority is determined by the number of degrees or the number of letters after somebody's name. That's how you determine who's in charge. In other cases, it's who's got the largest bank account. 
The ones who've got the, the, the most commas after the zeros, they're, they're the ones who are actually in charge of determining things. And then still in other scenarios, you find that authority is, is based upon popularity and the number of connections that a person has. Well, here's what I want you to know. Back in first century Palestine, things weren't a lot different. Outside of the Roman government, which was considered to have ultimate authority, the ruling body over the Jews was the Sanhedrin. It was composed of 71 men, and that, of that, that, though, that group was comprised of a group of religious leaders known as the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And indeed, this was a very powerful council. The chief priests possessed authority because they had inherited it from their ancestors. And the Roman authorities and rulers had, had granted that authority to them. The scribes, they had authority because of their training as interpreters of the law of Moses. And the authority of the elders lay in their wealth and in their social connections and their influence. So the Sanhedrin's authority came via connections and via education and via wealth. Much like today, in our world, we recognize that the world trades in those currencies. Those are the things that all of us know a little something about. And, and we all recognize that, that it, it comes from those things is where power comes from. From those kind of currencies is where the ability to influence and rule come from. From those kind of currencies is where much of the authority that we recognize in our life comes from. And that is why when Jesus burst onto the scene here in Jerusalem, he turned everything upside down. Literally so. Because we find himself here on Tuesday, but the day before on Monday, he went into the temple and he saw all the things that were going on in the temple and the changing of money and the selling of, of, of animals to be sacrificed. And he saw that this place of prayer had been turned into a place of commerce and it infuriated him. And he turned over all of the tables and he scattered their money everywhere. And he stopped people from using the courts of the temple as a cut through, as a shortcut, as it were. And he treated that place as if it were his house. He came in and he cleared cleaned house, as it were, yet he had none of the currencies that the rest of these people dealt in. He, he had no wealth. He, he was not trained at the seminaries where all of the religious leaders of the day had been trained. And, and his family, his earthly father, well, he was, he was nothing more than a common, ordinary carpenter from the region of Galilee. Therefore, when Jesus came in and did what he did, his actions put him squarely in the crosshairs of the Sanhedrin. He put him squarely in the crosshairs of the people who thought they were the ones who were really in charge. And so as we'll read, Mark says that on this Tuesday, a confrontation occurs. Let's read about that confrontation this morning. Beginning in verse 27 of Mark chapter 11, we read this. Then they, that is Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority do you, are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you one question, then answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven, 
he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say for men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand that which you would have us to study this morning and help us to be able to recognize your authority in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned in my introduction, it is the authority of Jesus that is being questioned in this passage. It is, as one writer has put it, Jesus' divine presumption that takes center stage. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they want to know from Jesus, what gives you the right to come into this temple and to do the things that you're doing? Who, who authorized you to come in here and do the things that you're doing? Verse 28 tells us that. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, the, these things, I think the, the, the closest related issue that we can come up with is where Jesus the day before had turned over the, the tables of the money changers and driven out all the, the things and, and, and cleaned house. I think those are the, these things that are the clearest that, things that we can come up with that, that the, the Sanhedrin is asking him about. But I want you to know that was only the most recent episode in a long list of things that Jesus had done that had got, his, got the attention of the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders of his day. You might recall how back in the opening chapter of Mark's gospel, we read at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he went into Gal the Galilean city of Capernaum and entering the synagogue there, he began to teach. And Mark tells us that the people were astonished at his teaching. They were slack-jawed in amazement at him. They could not believe what they heard because it says he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In other words, his teaching was completely different from what they had grown accustomed to. His teaching was something altogether different from that of the scribes. It was the same thing that happened in the Sermon on the Mount. There in, in, in Matthew chapter 6 and 7, you'll, you'll, you'll read there that, that Jesus, when he was teaching, was fond of this phrase. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus was not afraid to say, listen, all of your religious leaders may come and tell you these things right here. They may tell you this is how you're to interpret the Old Testament. But I'm going to supersede everything that they've said and tell you how it should be interpreted and where they missed the mark. You see, Jesus wasn't afraid to step forward and take authority in his teaching. And at the very end of his Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says this, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That word that is translated authority in our English language is the word exousia. And it, the Greek word exousia really literally means out of one's essence. It means to come out of one's inner being. R.C. Sproul has written that our Lord's teaching was the utterance of the one who was of the same essence as the Father. So Jesus' authority 
was rooted and grounded in God himself. Consequently, when Jesus taught, the people sensed an implicit claim to an intrinsic authority that was superior to anything that they'd ever heard before. And they were absolutely amazed by it. Now, that didn't go unnoticed by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, you turn the page and you get to Mark chapter 2. And if you remember, last year we talked about that. There was this man who was paralyzed. And he had four friends who wanted to get him to Jesus because they had heard about his ability to heal. And, but they couldn't get him to Jesus because Jesus was teaching yet again in a house. And the crowd in the house was so large that the people couldn't get the man with paralysis there. So that's when they decided to open a hole in the roof and lower him down in front of Jesus. But before Jesus healed that man of paralysis, he pronounced that the man's sins had been forgiven. And who should be in the crowd listening to the teaching that Jesus did that day? But some of those scribes who had made their way there listening because they had heard about the, the authority with which Jesus taught. And here he was, sure enough, he, healing this man and pronouncing forgiveness of sins. And Mark tells us that some of the scribes sitting there began to reason in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Do you see the point? The issue yet again is authority. Who does this man think he is to be able to forgive sins? Only God can do that. This man has no ability to do things along that way. Who gave him that kind of authority? But of course, Jesus had been displaying his authority all along, and he continued to do so. Just a cursory glance at things that we've studied in Mark's gospel tell us that he exercised his authority in the natural realm when he healed illnesses and diseases of countless individuals. He, he displayed his authority by commanding a storm to calm down for the winds to cease blowing when he and his disciples were out on a boat. He exercised his authority in the spiritual realm by casting out demons and then telling those same demons to be quiet and not say anything. He exercised his authority by demonstrating it over death when he called Jairus' little daughter back to life after she had died. He exercised his authority over relationships. When he went to, to men who were, who were carrying out their daily responsibilities and jobs and told them to drop what they were doing and to come and follow him, and they did, making them his disciples. In fact, as Joey Shaw has written in his book regarding the authority of Jesus, he says in Mark's gospel, Jesus displays his supreme authority in a whole host of ways. He says you see it over Satan, demons, religion, his disciples, social order, nature, natural elements, sickness, disease, physical disability, sin, and death. Jesus displays his authority over all of those avenues and areas of life. But even in light of all of that evidence that Jesus had been demonstrating again and again and again for three years of his ministry, there were still those, like the various members of the Sanhedrin, who refused to acknowledge and refused to, to submit to his authority. The evidence was clear. I mean, no one could do the things that Jesus did and not possess the authority that only comes from being one with God the Father, yet... Though the evidence was clear, the chief priests, the scribes, 
and the elders were guilty of the same thing that others continue to be guilty of even today. In fact, note with me the very first point on your outline this morning. The very first point I want you to know is this, is that many are annoyed by Jesus' authority. Many are just flat out annoyed by the authority that Jesus exercises. The Sanhedrin's annoyance was obvious by the questions that they asked. Who do you think you are? Just tell me who you think you are coming into this place, acting like you're some high up muckety muck going to tell us what to do. That's exactly the way that they approached Jesus. And I would suggest to you that that same line of questions are still questions that are asked today. Just slightly different. People today want to know, what gives Jesus the right to tell me what to do with my money? What gives, what gives Jesus the right to demand that I worship him? Who does he think he is to establish the fact that there is no other way to heaven but through him? Who is he? Who is he to determine what behaviors are considered just and which ones are considered sinful? There may be some of you in this room who are struggling with questions like that. Maybe you've struggled with those before, or maybe you're struggling with some of those even right now. Perhaps Jesus' authority annoys you. If so, then let me point you to what happens next in our text. You see, it was right here. When he's faced with these questions that are being peppered to him by the Sanhedrin, that Jesus does something masterful. You see, instead of giving his accusers a direct answer, he asks a question of his own that traps these so-called Jewish authorities in their own web. Mark, Mark tells us that he says in verses 29 and 30, he says, I will also ask you one question. Literally in the Greek, he says, I've got one word, one word. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. This is an amazing thing. I'm actually kind of shocked when I first started reading this. And I'm not shocked because Jesus answered a question with a question. That was actually a, a really smooth thing to do. Lawyers do it a lot now. And, and, and sometimes if you engage in, into some kind of, 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 of a conversation with people, we do it all the time too. Is my wife in here? Sometimes I may even try to do that. She asks me a question and I may turn it and ask a question in return because doing that sometimes allows you to get to the heart of the issue. And so Jesus doing that was a, was a very smooth thing, but that's not what shocks me about this passage. All the rabbis tended to tended to, to do that same thing. What shocks me about this passage is that Jesus says that everything that needs to be known about him can be summed up in one event, the baptism of John. That, that surprises me when I first read it. And it makes me want to go, well, Maybe, maybe I need to investigate that one more time to figure out exactly what the baptism of John actually means. What, what could he have been speaking about there? Well, we know this. We know that when John the Baptist came on the scene, he was the forerunner of Christ. We know that he was the one that the Bible says was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. 
We know that he was the one who preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We know that John the Baptist baptized countless people, Jews who came to the Jordan River, many of whom still followed him and held him in high regard. But we also know this, that when John the Baptist was the one who laid the preparatory groundwork for the ministry of our Lord. In fact, according to Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, we read that John the Baptist says, there is one who comes after me who is mightier than me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. And I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That tells us that, that he knew he was not the greatest. There was one coming behind him, but he came as one who was there to lay the groundwork. And then we see the actual baptism of Christ that occurs in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist. Mark tells us immediately coming up from the water, Jesus saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What we understand is that that voice from heaven was that of God the Father assuring Jesus of his approval. It was, it was validation from the Father that Jesus truly was his son. Furthermore, when the heavens were ripped open, it was the spirit that came and, and lit upon Jesus as a dove. And in that moment, we see all members of the Holy Trinity together at one time in the same place. The pleasure of the Father is accompanied by the indwelling power of the Spirit in the person of Jesus. And therefore, as, as Edwards notes, Jesus' baptism inaugurated his exousia. It inaugurated his authority, his conscious oneness with the Father, and his sovereign freedom and empowerment for ministry. So listen, when Jesus asks the Sanhedrin to come to a decision regarding John's baptism as to whether it was from heaven or from man, what he is doing is forcing them to examine the evidence and to state what they believe. And if they concluded that John's baptism was solely from men, then they would be justified in accusing Jesus and refusing him the authority that he claimed. But if John's baptism was from heaven, then Jesus' authority exceeds their own because it came directly from God. And what that means is that his authority may annoy them, but if it came from heaven, then their annoyance and their rejection of his authority was unjustified. Therefore, Therefore, note the next point on your outline. The next point is this. If Jesus is God's son, then his authority is absolute. And I would even add this, whether it annoys you or not. If Jesus is God's son, then his authority is absolute whether it annoys you or not. Now, for these scribes and these priests and these elders, the question that Jesus asked was a real stumper. Um, they recognize the dilemma that Jesus has placed them in. As a matter of fact, this is one of the more humorous places in the, in the scriptures to me, and you get a little taste of kind of where my humor comes from if you, you see this. You see, 71 men made up the Sanhedrin, and they were very self-important, and they thought of themselves with, as being very powerful, and they were. But 
I can imagine they had their scouts out because they knew Jesus had been there the two previous days. They knew the scene that he had caused on the previous day. And so no doubt some of those scouts came back and let them know, hey, Jesus is here. The guy, you know, the one that y'all were talking about, he's here. He's got his guys with him. All of his disciples, they're inside, the, they're inside the temple. And I imagine they all dialed each other up on their cell phones and said, hey, the time's here, let's roll. Let's roll. So they all get together and all 71 of them come in mass, I believe, to, to, to confront Jesus. And as they come in mass to confront him, they're doing so with the idea of intimidating him. They want their vast numbers to come in to, 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 to intimidate him and his disciples and to put him on the defensive. But I want you to notice with just one question, with just one question, Jesus is able to turn everything. And he says, guys, before I answer your question, let me ask you one. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And it left them completely silent. They didn't know what to do. All of a sudden, this great big old bad bunch of 71 guys out there had to turn around and go, oh, no, we hadn't anticipated that. What do we do now? If we say this, then, then we're going to find ourselves in trouble here. And if we say this, do you see what Jesus did? In just stating his question, he demonstrated his divine authority. They were completely left without a foot to stand on. And suddenly you're trying to figure out how do we answer him? They knew this. If we say that John's baptism was from God, then, then he's going to tell us, then why didn't you believe him? And if, but if we say what we truly believe is that it came from men, and then the, the sentence isn't finished, but John, Mark finishes it for us, they were, they were fearful of what would happen to them. Luke says that they were fearful that the people would stone them because of John's popularity. And they knew that John was a prophet. These men were caught. They had been trying to trap Jesus, but now they themselves are the ones that are trapped. They were in a no-win situation. Either way they answered was going to cause them to be defeated. I also find it interesting that these members of the Sanhedrin didn't deny the evidence. They simply tried to figure out a way to explain it away. What could not be denied was that God's hand had been upon John's ministry, but like so many still do today. The real problem was not the evidence. The problem was them. And the problem remains to be us. Danny Aiken has put it this way. He says, the idols of our heart lurking beneath the surface are the real issues. Because if I accept that Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins and was raised from the dead, then my life will never be the same again. That's the real issue. And it's a scary thought for many. You see, perhaps the, the root of that issue is what sticks with some of you this morning. As you consider the claims of Christ, you know that there are ample claims that prove the evidence that Jesus is who He says He is. You've got people sitting around you this morning whose lives give evidence to the fact that Jesus Christ has saved them and changed their lives. You've got, the, you've got the fully revealed Word of God right there that shows you where the Holy Spirit working through it, testifying that Jesus is who He is. Yet, yet you are fearful of allowing Him to become the absolute authority in your life because you know that that means you have to give up control. And it scares you to consider the fact that Christ calls His disciples to lay down everything, to turn loose of it all, to pick up the cross, as Jesus says, and to follow him on the road that's marked with suffering. 
For many people, that's a fearful thing. And so therefore, they refuse, they refuse to acknowledge the authority of Christ. For others, it's not that fear so much as it is a fear of men. Mark reveals that the motivating factor behind the, the high priests and the scribes and the elders was they were afraid of the consequences of if they owned up to the true belief that they had with regard to John's baptism. They were afraid of the people. It wasn't, it wasn't so much that they, they didn't want to, to have their allegiances changed as much as it was that they just didn't want the people to come after them. They knew that, that owning up to where they, what they truly believed about John the Baptist was going to cause them to have to pay a very personal price with the people. And so as one has put it this way, men are very often cowardly when challenged by the Lord. You see, Jesus turned their question regarding his authority back on his accusers, and so they answered and said to Jesus, we don't know. To put it in our common language, they punted. They, they begged off. They, they wimped out. They decided not to answer the question. That leads me to the third point that I want you to see this morning. The third point is this. In their willful unbelief, many will hide behind dishonest answers. Many will hide behind dishonest answers. You see, these religious leaders said that they did not know what the source of John's baptism was, but they did know what they thought. And it's evidenced by the fact that they never once tried to help him when Herod had, his, had him beheaded. They never once offered one voice to his, to his help, nor did they lift one finger to assist him. But they would not own up to that belief because they were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the fact that they would lose their influence and their prestige. And all the evidence was there to point to the fact that John the Baptist was a prophet, God's prophet. Just as all the evidence was there to point to the, to the fact that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. But these men, just like others of their day and just like many in our day, refused to believe but they were not honest enough to admit it. They said, we don't know where John's authority came from. And so Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. You see, Jesus was under no compulsion to answer a question that was designed to destroy him. But there's no doubt from where his authority came. In fact, just a couple of days later, that same Sanhedrin would convene once more and the high priest would ask Jesus this question in Mark chapter 14. He says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And all condemned him to be deserving of death. You see, these lesser authorities, these ones whose power was vested in them by sheer fact of their wealth, by the fact of their education or by their family connections, they believed they had a corner on authority. When someone posed the question, who's in charge here? They would have been the very first ones to raise their hand. But what this passage teaches us and what every one of us must come to grips with is that Jesus does not gain his authority in our lives by the same means as worldly powers assume their authority. Jesus' authority in our lives comes by nature of the fact that he created the heavens and the earth. 
That he is the one who rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Jesus' authority comes by the simple fact that heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. That's what it means when Jesus says he is the authority. He is the authority in this world because Jesus is God. And therefore, let me say this to you with all the love and with all the sincerity that I have available to me. The authority of Jesus may annoy you. It may bother you that he dares to proclaim his ultimate authority and power over your life. But the subjective evidence of countless people, coupled with the objective evidence of the holy word of God that has revealed to us who he is, tells us that because he is God's son, his authority is absolute. And therefore, it will do you no good whatsoever to hide behind dishonest answers when confronted with his authority. Instead, the Bible declares for us what will be the ultimate end. It gives us a picture of what one day will be what we see and what we hear. And there's very few months that go by that I don't find myself coming back to this passage. And the reason that I think that I do is because it gives us an answer to what will one day be reality. And it comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 where he tells us that with regard to Jesus, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, listen, every knee will bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why is that? Well, friend, it is only for one reason. It is because Jesus is God's Son and because that is the case, he is the absolute authority. All of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The origin and the nature of Jesus' authority supersedes all other authorities and necessitates our total submission to him. What does that mean? How do we apply that? Well, this passage demands that we ask the question, who's in charge here? And by here, I mean your life. Who is in charge of your life? Who is the authority in your life? You see, if the scriptures, if what they teach are true, if Jesus Christ is the supreme authority of the universe, then he will ultimately be the supreme authority over your life. And the truth, that truth has ramifications. It means that he alone is worthy of being lifted up to the highest place of worship in your life. No one else, nothing else should ever supplant him. It means that he has the right to claim ownership of anything that you have and anything that I have. It means that he has the, he has the authority to declare that anything that we own can be his. It means that he has the authority to come to us and to convict us over areas of our life that we've taken control in order that he might clear out the clutter that we have brought into our lives. 
And we have the responsibility to submit to that conviction and confess and repent of those sins. In fact, that Jesus is the ultimate authority ultimately means that each one of us will one day be held accountable for our acceptance or our rejection of His authority. Judgment and discipline will be meted out to those who refuse to acknowledge the authority of Christ in their life. At the climax of His Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declared that one day all the world will stand before Him and He will assign to each person their destiny. And the criterion by which he will judge everyone will be how they are related to him. He says, in that day, many will come to me and say, did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not do mighty works in your name? And Jesus will look at them and say, depart from me because I never knew you. What that means is, is that the decisive issue which determines a person's eternal destiny is whether or not that person is known by Christ. My question for you this morning is simply this. Are you known by Christ or are you annoyed by Him? Do you fear Him with a reverential, holy fear or do you fear the consequences of your decision to follow it? You see, the issue before you is the same one that was before the members of the Sanhedrin. The issue before you is the authority of Christ. Friend, if He is who He claims to be and who the Word of God reveals Him to be, then to reject Him is to spend an eternity in hell. On the other hand, to accept His absolute authority and to bow before Him in faith and repentance is to have Him become your Savior. And it is through humility, the humility of faith and repentance, that we become known by Christ. So my question to you is, have you humbled yourself before Christ, the ultimate authority in your life? Have you bowed before Him in faith and repentance, confessing Him as your Lord? Because, friend, one day, one day, you will be held accountable for that. And the Bible tells us that today is a day of grace. And while today is today, there is offer of pardon and forgiveness and tenderness and love and mercy. And so in light of that fact, won't, won't you bow before him? Won't you trust him with your life and with all that you have? Because brothers and sisters, that is what his authority demands. This is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father